Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's January 24th, 1972, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It was today in history in 1972 that two local hunters stumbled across a bizarre figure in the rugged jungle of Guam. He was extremely skinny with a beard dressed in clothes woven from tree fibre. This wild-eyed stranger was Japanese soldier Suichi Yokoi, a one-man army who had spent most of the 27 years since World War II ended living in a hole in the ground. So by this stage, Yokoi was 57 years old, hiding out in the jungle, clinging to the notion that any Japanese service person must not surrender. And so when these two uh, hunters came along, he tried to grab their guns. But because he'd been living on, let's face it, a not terribly nutritious diet, uh, he really wasn't any match for these two local hunters. And consequently, they overpowered him. And he apparently cried for them to kill him there and then, because the alternative was great disgrace. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before about the peculiarly Japanese dedication to the national cause and their particular cultural dislike of surrender. You know, no no country likes to admit they've lost a war. Mm. Um, but even by those standards, the story of Soichi Yokoi is astonishing. Mm. But let's just wind back and explain what he was doing there. Because in a way, this story really starts in 1941 with the battle for the island of Guam. So it's an island in Micronesia, The Americans had had it since the 19th century, but the Japanese took it in the Second World War. Obviously, it's very strategically useful in terms of its location. Fast forward to 1944, Americans recaptured the island. It was a three-week battle after US Marines landed on Guam. It was incredibly hard for... There were about 20,000 Japanese troops stationed on the island, and more than 18,000 of them were killed in action. So that still left a couple of thousand who fled into the bush for the most part. And there was a very real reason as well why Yokoi and others would be afraid to expose themselves, which was that there was a very real danger that they would be killed. This is exactly what happened to hundreds of the so-called Japanese holdouts who had fled into the jungles and the mountains, you know, the centre of Guam is very remote and rugged and lots of them were just executed on site because the the Japanese occupation had been brutal so they certainly had no friends among the locals and the US Marines who were pushing through the island weren't particularly interested in taking prisoners either so I think it's easy to get caught up in you know Japan is like this Japanese culture is like that and obviously the honour factor did play a big part but Honestly, there was a self-preservation element mm. to it. So they couldn't just walk out with their hands up and say, oh, you know, well, we gave it a good go, but I'd like to surrender now yeah. because <laughs> there was a pretty high chance they would just be killed on the spot. But also they were just very, very good at it. So whether they were doing it because they had this sense that after you lose the uh, main battle, you can still melt into the jungles and be an effective guerrilla force, or whether they just Mm. were concerned about their own lives and didn't want to surrender for that reason, many of them were capable of staying undetected for a really long period of time and yokoi more than others. So they were known to erase their footprints as they moved through the undergrowth, uh, and they learnt to live off the land really, really quickly. They ate venomous toads, which I, I don't know quite how you make a venomous toad 
non-venomous. River eels and rats and then all of the local vegetation as well. Uh, Yukoi apparently learnt to make a trap from wild reeds, which he used for catching these eel, but he also then dug himself an underground shelter, so he quite quickly became a very resourceful person. Yeah, I mean, I suppose at the point that he went into the jungle with those plentiful other soldiers, many of whom were later killed or surrendered or died, he didn't know that the war was going to end and that Japan was going to lose. All he knew was that Japan had lost Guam. So it makes sense in the short term, yes. But (laughs) uh, he admitted afterwards that he did find out sometime in the early 1950s that Japan had lost the war, that the war was over. Um, And, you know, you would assume from that could conclude that he could safely go back to Japan. And yet he stayed where he was. He continued to hold out. And that's where I think the honour factor does come into play. Mm. There was obviously something psychological going on. He enjoyed a solitary existence, I have to say. So initially there were about 150 holdouts in the immediate aftermath of the war, but they quickly, then the numbers dwindled, you can imagine, starvation, capture, etc. But Yokoi was with two other soldiers and he was with them for years. And then it seems like well, this kind of two explanations. One is that he said, you know, they were worried that if they hung around together too much, that they would be noticed and captured. But also, they had arguments. They these were the, you know, these, these were the only three people in each other's world, and they managed to have arguments about you know food, where to store the food, like what their tactics should be. And so they eventually decided to just live apart. I think the, it sounds like <laughs> the other two lived together, and Yokoi lived apart from them. But he would visit them until 1964 when he discovered their skeletons. Mm. Uh, this speculation that they may have died after eating poisonous nuts and after that he was on his own for eight years he that's actually hard told... isn't it when you go along with a basket of fresh shrimp hey guys, <laughs> hey guys. sorry about our fallout uh, i've brought you yeah. some venomous toads guys <laughs> his motivation to stay alive was partly so that he could give news of the two of his two comrades death to their family so that they could finally grieve which is what his family had done in the intervening time because just yes. skipping ahead a little bit he did go back to japan and the televised the television camera followed him back to his hometown and they stopped off at the cemetery so that he could pay tribute to his family. Obviously, most of his family had died in the time he'd been away and he was on that family tombstone. You know, he had been declared dead back in the 40s. I mean, that must be a confronting thing to have to deal with your own yeah. tombstone. The Ebenezer Scrooge moment. Yeah. <laughs> but his first words apparently when he got back to Tokyo were, it is with much embarrassment that I return. And this was broadcast nationally and instantly became a really popular saying, I guess because it did tie into that sense of both the discipline of honour that prevailed during the Second World War, but I guess also something about a former culture that had been a little bit lost. And Mm. one of the things that Yokoi often conveyed after he had returned to Japan was his slight disapproval of what the country had become in his absence. The ways in which Japan in particular modernised during this time period was extreme. So a lot of which just would have looked entirely unrecognisable. Yeah, and a whole generation had been born and grown up in the period that he was away. It was 27 years after the end of the Second World War. So, you know, imagine if someone in 1972 turned up in Germany and was still praising Adolf Hitler, you know. I mean, it is something where the whole nation then has to confront what they've slightly been putting under the carpet, maybe, as the losing nation in a war, like trying to rebuild and not talk about how there's been a cultural shift, but just letting it happen. He must have felt like Austin Powers, You know, like he'd been preserved and then defrosted. (laughs) When they asked him what he wanted to do, they said, what do you want to do when you get back into the world? And he was like, I'd like to go up a mountain and meditate. Oh. You're like, you couldn't make time for that in the last 27 years? (laughs) 
interesting fact about Yokoi as well is that when he initially was conscripted into the army, he was considered to be such a weakling that he was assigned a behind-the-lines role in logistics. And within the Japanese army at that time, soldiers who had non-frontline roles were absolutely despised and loathed mm. and scorned. And sometimes in infantry soldiers would refuse to serve them and accept them into their units because they didn't want to serve alongside these people because they were considered so physically inferior and cowardly. And then he goes on to spend, you know, the best part of 30 years surviving in the jungle by himself. And another funny thing that was kind of a direct upshot of his discovery was this sense that if we've found Yakoi, maybe there are other holdouts still living out mm. in the jungles, not revealing themselves. Yeah. So the thing with Yakoi is that he wasn't the last holdout discovered. The reason that he got so much attention was that it had been 12 years since the last Japanese holdout to come forward. And that was in 1960. But there were two more who were discovered after Yakoi in 1974. And the interesting thing is, of those final three I think Yokoi is the one who definitely had the most successful readjustment after his rediscovery you know he voiced a lot of concerns with what Japan in the 1970s looked like but he was able to make a life for himself there well Nakamura who was the last one yes uh, was found by the Indonesian Air Force 29 years after the surrender Um, but because he was actually Taiwanese fighting for the Japanese army, he, he got repatriated back to Taiwan. So he never got the same like hero's reception mm. that the others did. Yeah, and he was one of the many colonial volunteers and conscripts who were brought into the Japanese army. But because he didn't match the mainstream portrayal of what a Japanese soldier was, Japan didn't really know what to make of him. You know, he didn't speak Japanese, for one thing. So he, he didn't have a place there. And he was, he was returned to Taiwan, but he was also out of place there. You know, he was part of an indigenous group. He didn't speak Chinese. And lots of people in Taiwan saw him as a traitor for fighting for Japan anyway. Mm. The last actually Japanese Japanese holdout was a guy called Hiro Noda, who was discovered on Libang Island in the Philippines, also in 1974. He only stood down when his old commander personally flew out to give him the order to do so. Wow. He was obviously Don't say a, that's not cultural. <laughs> I mean, he did return to Japan, but he was horrified by modern Japan and he emigrated to Brazil instead. And you do have to wonder, like... Since none of these holdouts came out voluntarily, there must have been others, mustn't yeah. there, who spent their lives in hiding and then died. It, like, almost certainly. There's at least one or two. It does feel like it takes on a bit of a Yeti or Loch Ness monster-like quality. <laughs> yeah. where it's like, there's got to be more out there. we just got to search harder to find these final holdouts now, you know, in their <laughs> sort of hundreds. Now there are hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow goes to a leper colony in China, she visits a Hindu temple, she buys a monkey in Singapore, blah, 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 blah. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.